listening to a podcast from The National. Muslims across the world are celebrating Eid al-Adha, which coincides with Hajj in Saudi Arabia. Hajj is the world's largest annual pilgrimage and one of the five pillars of Islam. It requires the faithful to repeat a set of rituals first performed by the Prophet Muhammad centuries ago. An estimated 2 million Muslims have descended this week on Mecca. One of them is the national's Nasr al-Wasmi, who gives us his first-hand account from Saudi Arabia. And later in the show, we'll discuss the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis with Campbell McDermott, who just returned from a trip to Bangladesh where he met with Rohingyas. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm Nina El-Turubi. Nasser Al-Wasmi, who typically hosts this show from our Abu Dhabi studio, is in Mecca this week for Hajj. He joined us on the phone. So they say the journey of Hajj is a journey of a lifetime. From what you've seen, what would you say about that? You can't have two million people, well, more than two million people, uh, and expect them all to have the same experience. But having said that, uh, for many, that is the case. You're 100% correct in saying that some people, uh, many who have come from low-income countries, have saved their entire lives, uh, sold, you know, important belongings, livestock, some property, just to make it to Hajj, the seminal moment in uh, Muslims' life. But um, what's interesting in that is you can feel it when, when people are walking around. You can tell that, you know, aside from just trying to make it financially to get here, to make enough money to be able to afford what is, at times for them, very, very costly uh, a ticket and accommodation and all the things that you need to have when you come to hedge. For them, they've, they've dreamt about it. Uh, a lot of people that I've spoke to, it's a highly emotional experience for them. They uh, believe that this is, the last pillar that they have to fulfill to become complete Muslim. Hajj is one of the five pillars, uh, and it's mandatory if you are willing and able. So many people, what they do is uh, they do pay for other people to perform it, and there's a bit of goodwill charity going on there. But uh, for, for the vast majority, they want to actually come here and retrace the steps of the Prophet Muhammad and his last pilgrimage in 632 CE. Um, and every step of the hedge is representative of that. And you really get into, I mean, for me personally, there's definitely the spiritual side and everything from what I'm observing, but there's also a historical aspect to it that in uh, many ways and in many things that you're doing, you're doing them exactly as Muslims have been doing for 1,400 years. And we're talking about millions of people. I mean, if you're, if you're considering it now, it's gotten to the point of two to three million. But this has been the case since 632 CE. And uh, it, is, it is a journey of a lifetime. It's, uh, it's a really unique experience as well in that everyone is here to achieve one thing, and that is to perform hedge. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's amazing. And 
you being a reporter and being a Muslim at the same time, I mean, is there any element of Hajj that isn't covered in Western media that needs attention? Well, the, I mean, the big stories that come out of Hajj uh, in Western media, it's always these uh, uh, tragedies that unfortunately happen. You have uh, stampeding, uh, falling of some sort of infrastructure or, you know, uh, outbreak, pandemic of a disease afterwards. But this is really only telling a very small picture. Yes, you're going to have that happen. You're going to have that happen whenever two million people gather anywhere, two to three million. I'm from Kuwait. My entire population is two to three million. Do accidents happen every day there? Yes. However, uh, at organizing a large-scale event, and I do understand this, there is a certain onus on the host country to provide every single uh, experience or every single amenity uh, to provide every comfort they could possibly do to uh, the pilgrims. And in that sense, I mean, Saudi Arabia has made strides uh, it jumped leaps and bounds in its organization uh, capacity over the last few years and the last decade, really. Uh, we've gone from basically trying to hold on to traditions, and that at times entailed uh, a resistance to technology. But now you can see uh, Saudi Arabia, with you know all the changes that it's going through, really embrace uh, the Internet and trying to use that as a tool to facilitate the uh, experience here in Hedge. So I think what Western media doesn't cover is something that's really difficult for journalists to cover typically, and that's the emotional, the spiritual side, to, side of it. Yes, I mean, it's kind of difficult to, to write about those things, and it might make some uh, journalists or writers, maybe just people, a little bit uh, uneasy to, to, to write factually about religious aspects. But there, you don't have to be religious at all or spiritual to understand that this means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, you can see it, you know, when at one of the rituals, when we were in Arafah, just people breaking down completely. Uh, almost like there's been a buildup, like some sort of tension in them for years. And this is, this is a big part of it. This is, I think, what doesn't get covered. Two million people are here today not to, you know, get into large crowds and be stuck in 42 degrees weather heat, but they're here to fulfill what is for a Muslim uh, starting anew. Yeah. They wear the white garments as a sense of purity, as a, to symbolize uh, their approach or their, their facing God and uh, trying to absolve themselves of all sins in the past. And that is obviously going to come with an array of emotions. And you can see it in a lot of people's faces. And honestly, people are happy. I mean, it, it, it's weird to say, but there's a certain sense of camaraderie that I don't think I've ever experienced before. And going back on your point, I mean, the Saudi Arabian government launched this year a series of electronic services to ease the demanding experience of the pilgrims. Um, from what you've seen so far, has this helped impact um, their experience at all? One, one, one thing that's completely changed the experience for people, and it's only really happened in the last 10 years, is mobile uh, internet. I think we failed to remember that Hedge for many was extremely dangerous uh, pilgrimage in, uh, you know, maybe 40, maybe even yeah, 40, 50 years ago. 
this was the kind of pilgrimage that you'd go on at times uh, by road, as far as way away from places such as India, Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, you'd be gone for months. And all in the hopes that you would perform the pilgrimage, return home, gain the honorific of Hajji, or for women, Hajjia, uh, and be given the opportunity to, to complete the five pillar, pillars of Islam. Uh, but now it's not as scary for many. I mean, at the at the airport, you could you could see that the three or uh, four mobile uh, companies here in Saudi Arabia are gearing packages towards pilgrims. It's cheap, it's affordable. You pop it into your phone, and all of a sudden, the fear of being gone for uh, weeks, at times months, is gone because you can connect with your family and. What's really cool is what people are doing in terms of sharing the experience. They, uh, when we were, when, when I went to the Kaaba in, uh, Mecca, the sacred mosque, uh, I saw a family from Pakistan, uh, who were, I guess, Skyping or WhatsApp calling with their family back home. And they were pointing at the Kaaba. And that's, that's really what this is about. It's connecting people. And we're all here, obviously, to perform the pilgrimage, but a lot of it has to do with uh, being considered equal in, in that regard. When you're lining up to pray, it doesn't really matter who the person to your left or right is from or, or where they're from. Uh, they could, you know, Malaysian, African, wherever it is, or what social status they have because you're all equal in the face of God. So what kind of tips would you give to people that are planning to go on Hajj? Everyone's going to have different, they're going to face different challenges when they're here. But I think, I think what I would have done differently is I would have prepared more uh, physically, spiritually, just, you know, in terms of organization. It is, it is a massive undertaking to move millions of people at the same time. You're going to be stuck in traffic for hours on end. You're going to uh, have to walk for dozens of kilometers. You're going to have to, and in, in the case of if you're going to do it in the next 10 or maybe 15 years, it's going to be in summer. It's going to be hot. I spoke to some pilgrims from Turkey, uh, some from Pakistan, that they they were almost they were on the brink of shock because they had never been in this kind of weather and exposed completely. Yes, they were in Mecca for weeks before, but hey, there you have hotels, you have AC, you can stay cool in the shade. You don't have to really be out in the sun any given time. Uh, but now it's forty two degrees, and they are trying to deal with that. It's really hot and no amount of cooling or, or sprayed water or anything can really uh, uh, remedy that. We have actually next to where we're staying, there's a uh, clinic where a bunch of nurses, volunteers are helping out uh, people. People are coming in, pilgrims are coming in with heat stroke and that's that's the majority of the cases. I asked them, that they're, they're just had a heat stroke. These people don't understand that you can really dehydrated and that can be really dangerous. The elderly and the sick are most at risk. I think uh, just preparation is the most important thing. Uh, making sure that you understand, try to read up as much as you can, obviously on the spiritual side, but also the logistical side, because because for, for a lot, they just thought it would be an easy walk, but at many times, it's not. But uh, at the end, it's massively massively rewarding for, for the millions here. And... Uh, you you have to rely on other people, and that's that's where the humanity of it all comes, and that I think is uh, what makes this place really special.
Campbell McDermott is a reporter on the foreign desk at The National. He just returned from a week-long trip to the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, where he witnessed the dire situation himself. He joined us in the studio. So you've just come back from Bangladesh, where you visited Cox's Bazaar's refugee camp. Tell us about your experience. Right, so the, the refugee camp outside Cox's Bazaar is the largest refugee settlement in the world. Um, and most of the people who live there are Rohingya refugees who came in a three-month period um, starting from August 25th last year. So that was, I think, the IOM, the International Office of Migration, called that the the, the fastest uh, exodus in history. It was, it was totally unprecedented. And what they arrived to was basically uh, jungle, and they had to carve out places in this hilly terrain to build huts out of bamboo and tarpaulins, while um, NGOs, the UN and Bangladeshi authorities struggled to provide services for them. And that's where they are a year on. Um, the camps have got a little bit more developed. Um, they still suffer from very poor drainage. It's monsoon season at the moment, so every time it rains, the hillsides are subsiding, huts are collapsing, rivers, low-lying areas are flooding, um, so there's a very large health risk associated with that. Um, and it's pretty unsustainable living situation for this um, huge number of Rohingya refugees who are living there. I think it's around 900,000 are there, and about 720,000 of those arrived, as I said, you know, in a three-month period last year. I mean, I'm sure you've met a lot of the uh, Rohingya refugees when you were there. Can you tell us a few stories? A lot of the refugees have actually had incredibly traumatic experiences. Um, so these people fled their homes, their villages in Rakhine State due to a, a coordinated campaign by the Myanmar military, which has been described as um, ethnic cleansing by the UN, um, the US, um, other like rights watchdog organizations have said it may have even amounted to an attempted genocide. But basically, the, the, the Myanmar government has long said that these are illegal migrants who have no place in, in Myanmar society. And what happened last year was that the military um, went across the state, village by village, um, driving people out, um, burning the entire villages. Um, thousands were killed, about at least 6,700 are estimated to have been killed by the military. This is includes women and children. Um, there was a, a campaign of, of rape um, of women by the military. Kids were killed. You know, there are just horrific stories. You know, you hear stories of babies being thrown alive onto fires. Um, so you can imagine that, you know, this is a very traumatized population and I was just shocked by how many of the people in the camp had stories like this you know parts of the camp you go to they'll say you know you won't find anyone around here who hasn't lost an immediate member of their family and people I interviewed had lost their entire families I spoke to people who were the only surviving members of their immediate family and so they've 
you know, being forced to, to live in these terrible conditions for a year, but also with this knowledge that, you know, their families were murdered by members of the Myanmar military and, you know, they've been there for a year and they're asking what's happening, what's what's the international community's reaction to this, you know, when will we get justice, when will the international community help us to be able to return to our homes where we grew up, where our grandparents grew up, and where we want our children to grow up, not as second-class citizens, but as human beings with human rights and protections. You know, they want to be able to sleep in their homes um, without worrying about, you know, the military coming to knock on the door or detain them or burn their villages. Going back to the to the international community um, issue that you've just mentioned, what does the community need to do more of to help ease this crisis? So while I was there, I also met with um, Bangladesh government officials. Um, and Bangladesh has been quite welcoming of these refugees. Um, you know, it's it's already the most densely populated country in the world. It's a developing nation and they've been forced to host this population of nearly a million refugees. So they're, they're very eager for um, the, the Rohingya to return home and they've been engaged in bilateral discussions with Myanmar about repatriation the UN has been involved in discussions with Myanmar about repatriation. These talks are ongoing. What what the Bangladesh officials said to me, though, is that the Myanmar government has been dragging the chain, has been deliberately um, you know, slowing the process. And what these officials I spoke to suggested to me is that they, they fear that the only thing the, the Myanmar government would respond to in this situation is international pressure. Um, but the, the problem with that is that, you know, the UN Security Council is unable to pass resolutions on this because China and Russia have, have opposed it. Um, and then there hasn't been, you know, too much in the way of individual states putting pressure. What we saw last week was that the U.S. announced some targeted sanctions against members of the Myanmar military, um, which they identified as having been responsible for parts of, of this ethnic cleansing campaign. Um, but you're not you're not seeing really broad pressure being placed on Myanmar to take them back, and you're seeing a kind of not a lot of the stick, a little bit of carrot. You've you, there's been uh, last month an announcement that the World Bank was prepared to loan. $100 million to Myanmar for development in Rakhine State. But as, as far as what I've seen, that hasn't included, you know, any kind of uh, guarantees attached to that, you know, any conditions. Um, so I, I haven't seen anything that's really suggested that, you know, aid or, or any kind of benefit to Myanmar would need to be contingent on making some progress on, on this um, situation. Right. And, you know, Continuing on from your point, looking forward uh, into the next few years, what's next for Myanmar's Rohingyas? I mean, can they, would you say, can they return safely to their country? Are they hopeful of that? 
So, I mean, the situation they're living in now is is very unsustainable. It's basically the problem with the camp where they're living is it's too too many people in too small a place. Um, and, you know, it, it's really not suitable. It's too hilly. It's not well-drained. But basically, it's too crowded. That, you know, there's too many people there. But, you know, Bangladesh rightly says, well, you know, we, we don't have any other space. We're the most densely populated country on Earth. Um, so they certainly want to go home. And, you know, they're saying this isn't our home. This is a refugee camp. We don't want to be refugees. We want to live in our home that we grow up in, our motherland, but, you know, where our ancestors are buried. Um, but they're also saying, you know, this isn't the first time that the Rohingya have, you know, been subjected to persecution by the Myanmar government. You know, there have been you know, previous waves of, of refugees coming into Bangladesh since the 90s. And, and some of the people I spoke to you know, said this isn't the first time they've had to flee their homes um, because of you know, communal violence and, and persecution. So now what they're saying is you know, we don't want to go back unless we get some guarantees. And, and they want citizenship rights in Rohingya. They want in Bangladesh and they want their the name Rohingya recognized so they want to be a recognized ethnic group in in Myanmar and and more than that more than having citizenship rights and and um, to be recognized as an ethnic group in Myanmar that they want guarantees of their protection you know they, they say this has happened to us before we want to go home but we ought also want guarantees that when we go home we're not going to be subjected to this again um and so, you know, ideally, that you know, they're talking about something like a UN peacekeeping force, and you know that that's not something that's been, you know, put on the table by anyone. Um, so it, it's not looking like they'll go home quickly. And you know, despite what the Bangladesh government says about wanting them to return home as soon as possible, I don't think any of you know the the NGOs providing support in the the camp they they don't expect to be going home soon. Um, you know, the Bangladesh government is very sensitive about talking about sort of medium-term, long-term planning in the camps. They don't want this to become a permanent problem. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, NGOs have to plan for the future and, you know, they're thinking they're going to be there for a while. to Campbell McDermott, who has more on the Rohingya crisis on our website. Thanks also to Nasser Al-Wesmi, who is reporting from Mecca. Read more about each story on thenational.ae. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. Follow Beyond the Headlines on your favourite podcast app to receive new episodes every week. I've been your host, Mina Al-Durubi. Thank you for listening and join us again next week.